Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, and we ask you to give us grace to hear it well today. May you open our ears so we would hear what you have us to hear, and our hearts to receive what you'd have us to receive, so we may do as you'd have us to do. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Even in our praise and worship of God, or perhaps we might say especially in our praise and worship of God, we often sell Him short. We value Him as lesser than He is. There is a disparity often between what we desire and expect of Him on the one hand, and on the other hand, what He actually does and who He actually is. This disparity may be innocent, a result of our unavoidable ignorance and immaturity, or at other times it may be less innocent, a willful desire that God be less than He is and do no more or be no more than we desire of Him. And sometimes it is a mixture of both. Our gospel reading this morning reflects this disparity, perhaps in a form on the more innocent side of the spectrum. Clopas and his companion, who is unnamed, perhaps because we are invited in him to see ourselves as the fellow traveler from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But the two are taking their rather discouraged journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And Jesus joins them, and they do not recognize who he is. He asks what they are discussing, and they are rather shocked that this man does not know what everyone, everywhere, is talking about. And so they tell him, have you not heard? We are talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now, this is not wrong, but as a description of Jesus, this sells him woefully short. They go on to talk about his death, and they say they are discouraged by this because they thought they had hoped he would be the one who comes to redeem Israel. Now, once again, they are not wrong in that hope that he would come to redeem Israel. However, here, especially what they mean here by redeem Israel, they are selling what he has come to do woefully short. Jesus then takes them through the Old Testament and shows them that he is not just a prophet. Yes, he may be a prophet, but he is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. He is the Christ the anointed one, the chosen one, the Son of God, the one who has come to do all that God has promised, the one that has been long awaited for. He's not just a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all men. And yes, he may have come to redeem Israel, but what he means by that is far greater than what the two travelers thought. He has not simply come to overturn foreign oppression, to restore the throne of David to Jerusalem, 
to once again make Israel in Palestine to be its own nation and country. He has come to redeem Israel and the world. He has come through his death and resurrection to overthrow sin and death. He is far more than they thought him. And he was doing far more than they hoped. Perhaps this is why they did not recognize him. They were looking for someone much smaller than he was, who did much less. I want to take this principle, this truth, that God is often far more than we think he is, maybe hope he is. And he does, he's interested in doing, he is doing far more than we hope he will do. I want to take that principle and take it to 1 Peter, our passage there this morning. Last week we saw the great promises of God writing to a people who are exiles, maybe literally exiles from their home, from, from Rome, having been expelled from Rome, but certainly figuratively from their families. As the first Christians in their area, they have been shunned from their society, shunned from their families. And he's saying, I've made you part of my family. I've given you an inheritance that is kept for you in heaven. You are mine. There is a salvation yet to come. Great promises. This is who you are. You are my child, born again into the family of God, sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's told them what the great promises. But in our passage today, he goes on to say, I'm doing much more than just that, than just giving you a home. Because in the context of telling this is who you are and then this is how you should act. He says you should indeed be obedient children, mirroring our Father. And he says he has called you is holy and you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be holy as I am holy. The construction here is certainly a command. This is what you are to do. But in construct, actually, the construct is a statement of intent. You shall be holy. He is quoting Leviticus 11, 44, in which God says, you talking to his people, you are going to be holy. You will be holy, my people. You shall be holy. It is echoing Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, which is the same idea. You, not, not just be holy. Hey guys, be, or be perfect in Matthew 5. Be perfect. He says, you shall be perfect as I am perfect. It may carry the weight of a command, but it is a statement of intent, a promise. You shall be holy. You shall be pure. 
You shall be set apart from all stain. Indeed, holy here, you shall be perfect. It is what God God intends for those who are born into His family. And it is a promise. In what is about to follow, I will state here that largely I'm going to quote so liberally from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity as to just make a blanket statement of, from here, for most of the rest of the sermon, I am going to be quoting from Mere Christianity, okay? (laughs) I will say occasionally Lewis says, but just know even when I don't say that, I am just giving Lewis credit for much of what is going going to happen in the rest of the sermon. I encourage you to go read. It's from the last chapters of Mere Christianity. Go read it. Uh, it will, it will, it is very good. But Lewis states that the passage, be holy or be perfect, often bothers us because we tend to read it as Jesus and Peter saying, unless you are perfect, unless you are holy, I will not help you. And since we all know that I cannot be perfect, I cannot be holy, We feel that this statement is not for us. Either we feel discouraged or we feel hopeless or we simply resign ourselves to the lesser ranks of God's people. There are the saints, the true, holy, and perfect people, or at least the ones closest to it. And then there's me. I'm down here at the bottom. But Lewis says this is not what God meant. It is more reasonable to think when God says be holy or be perfect. What he's saying is the only help I will give you is the help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. We greatly undervalue who God is and what he desires to do in our lives We want him to make us nice people. And he says, I'm going to make you perfect people like my son. And so we find ourselves often at cross purposes with God. And most of us who are parents or teachers or coaches understand something about this experience. I have found myself at times teaching a child or coaching a child and trying to learn, teach them a skill something that I think is they need to learn. And I am into teaching them this skill. And I'm, we're, we're drilling it, we're doing whatever we need to learn this skill, and I will get the question, when are we done? Can we be done now? And my response would be something like, well, have we learned it? Have we integrated this skill into our lives so it forms and shapes us, so that it helps us as we grow older, to know how to live and move in this world. That's my purpose in teaching this skill. While the child's purpose is just to get done with it, how many more times do we got to do this? One more time? If I get it kind of right the next time, can we be done? Because we just want to get through and move on to something more fun. And so it is often with God, we are at cross purposes with Him. His purpose is to make us perfect. And our purpose is just to make it through. Just to get through this. 
Maybe if we can have a little bit of fun while we're doing it. Maybe if we can accomplish a thing or two. We just want to make it through. And so often we find ourselves frustrated with God. Once again, Lewis says when he was a boy, he would sometimes experience a toothache at night. And he knew if he went to his mother at night, she would give him something that would relieve his pain and make the pain go away. But he would not go to his mother unless the pain became too unbearable that he simply had to. Why? Because he knew if he went to his mother, she would do more than just give him relief from pain. In the morning, he would, she would take him to the dentist. And the dentist would not simply, let, simply look at the tooth that was in pain and fix it. He knew the dentist would then start probing around at other teeth that weren't hurting yet and finding other things that need to be fixed. The dentist would not let sleeping dogs lie. And if you gave him an inch, he would take a mile. So it is with God. We may often come to him with a sin, one that is sort of hindering us in our happiness in life. Boy, if I could just overcome this sin, I'd be much happier. Relationships would be better. Or I wouldn't be as embarrassed. This sin is just sort of embarrassing. I just make a fool of myself sometimes. And if I could overcome this, life would be much better. God, can you handle this? And we say, yeah, I can handle that. But while I'm at it, there's some other things that need to be fixed. Maybe, a matter of fact, we'll deal with that one later. Let's deal with this other one first. The one that you're not so keen on giving up. That, that lust that you'd, you'd really like to hang on to. With, as St. Augustine said, make me chaste, but, but not yet. Still like that one. Let me hang on to that one. You take care of this sin. Those bursts of anger that sometimes make me look foolish in front of my friends. Can you take care of that one? God is not content to stop once he starts. Quoting again, This is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourselves in my hands, that is what you are in for, nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away but if you do not push me away, understand I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will do nothing less. We certainly would like God to be easily, as easily satisfied as we are. I don't get as angry as I used to. I've mostly given up gossip. I don't give in to the lust of the flesh the way 
I used to or as much as I used to. I'm in a good place. And those are good things. It is good to be moving in the right direction. And God is pleased with us when we're moving in the right direction, on the right trajectory, when we are growing and maturing. But George MacDonald said, Every father is pleased with his son's first steps. But no father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. God is easy to please, hard to satisfy. Nor will it do for us to be humble. Oh, I'm no saint. I'm no saint. We say this, and it is often taken as a humble acknowledgement of our lowly and weak state. But I fear it is often a statement of our intent. I don't particularly want to be a great saint. That means I don't get to do everything I want to do. That means there are demands made of me. I'm content to be an ordinary guy. This is not humility. It may be many other things. It may be laziness. It may be cowardice. It may be outright disobedience. There are many things it might be, but it is not humility because humility is submitting ourselves to God. And God's intention for us is to be a saint. That's what He intends for us. It may well be right to say, I'm no great saint because I am no great saint. But that should be followed with, but I intend to be because that is God's intention for me. Of course, on our own, we are far from perfection and holiness or even knowing what it is. And so that we cannot do the job ourselves. And when the job is done, we may not look back and say, what a great achievement that I did. Look at what I did in my perfecting of myself. It is not something I can do on my own. That is why God says, I intend to do it. You shall be holy. You shall be made holy and perfect. Nor will the job be done in this lifetime. I am not preaching that we may reach a state of perfection now before our death. This is part of the great joy and promise of this Easter season. That death is not just the end. But with the resurrection comes the great work of God in our lives. And the perfecting of us. Reaching a state of glory. But the fact that we cannot do it on our own. Nor the fact that we will reach this state of perfection in this life. Does not give us calls to indulge in laziness or cowardice. God certainly is not content to look at us in our sin and say, well, don't worry about that. We'll deal with that in the resurrection. Nor should we be content to leave it that way. Contentment is a good thing, but maybe not in every area. St. Paul says, godliness with contentment is a great gain. Godliness with contentment. 
And so we should not be content with our sin. It is, I suppose, a longing more than anything else that I hope to stir up this morning. A longing to have God invade every area, to do the work that He intends to do in our lives. To break down the resistance and say, you may work here, God, but let's leave this alone. I'm content to be the ordinary person that I want to be, not the saint that you want me to be. Not the full member of the family who clearly reflects the family likeness. But maybe someone who just carries the name. Once again, Peter has laid out the promise of glory and honor that accompanies being born into this family and being sanctified by his blood, the inheritance that has been given to us. And now God says, my children will be holy. We should long for that as much as we long for the great promise of the inheritance and the salvation that is to come because the two go hand in hand. So that when we face the great struggles and the fiery trials that Peter promises will come, they'll come because we are in this family. We will not be surprised. God's perfecting us. It's not always pleasant. He's building a great temple. Most of us would be satisfied to be a small cottage. The roof leaks a little bit, that's okay. The plumbing knocks, just who I am. And God says, I'm not content with that. And so when he comes in and begins to knock down walls and tear out the plumbing, we may grumble a bit and say, God, I thought that was already fixed. But if we are not at cross purposes with God, we will say, God, be thorough. Be thorough with me. And don't stop until you have built the perfect temple. He's doing far more than we anticipate. He has not simply come to redeem Israel. He's come to make a people of all nations and build them into a perfect temple, perfecting each one of us, making us in the image of His Son. Don't sell Him short. He is a bit of a perfectionist. And He won't stop. Don't push Him away. Let Him do His work. We can reject Him. What I want from us is a longing for Him to do that work. A willingness to endure it. He promises, I will not make it so heavy you cannot endure. And I will do nothing to you in which I am not there present, giving you the strength. Our position is to say, God, I cannot do this. I cannot be what you'd have me to be on my own. You do your work and long for it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.